Well, I guess I need to say thanks to you guys first because as far as I know, this is the longest project we have ever worked on and we're at the last lesson in walking through this book. And I don't even like to do books, but I'm super thankful uh, for how you guys have come uh, week in and week out. And it, I know it's been, how long, Sarah, about rough? Last March is when we started this project. So we've walked through a ton of information, almost 663 slides. And I didn't even put Cody's in. So we approached 700 slides over the last almost year and a half. So it's a lot of work, been very beneficial. I think at least from some of your comments, I know it's helped me. I really like where we're landing uh, with this last lesson out of this book because it's gonna be a confirmation of things that we've been learning the whole way, not as in a summary of stuff, but as in looking at things from a biblical theological perspective. In other words, keeping attention between two truths, and those two truths are eternal security and assurance. And I'll walk through this just like we walk through every other lesson because I really want you to understand what's going on in the text so that when you sit down with the book yourself, you can understand these tensions, you live in them, you let them affect your life wherever you find them, you study them to the fullest extent. If you're teaching them, you say everything it says and don't go beyond, but say everything it says. And this keeps us from going, well, you know, this is what I believe, and you run into your cherry-picked passages and trying to confirm just what you believe. You, that's not the way you approach the Bible. So we kind of learned that, so we're about to relearn that same emphasis on these two subjects. Now, when we get into this, this is usually, you know, one or the other is the way most people line up, and they'll argue about it. And again, they'll go to their favorite passages, and, you know, I believe in eternal security, and they'll say amen, and they'll say, my Bible says, and I, I can't stand that phrase. That is like the worst phrase, like we're using different Bibles. But that's how they stack the deck. That's how they load their phrases, and they want you on their side. So they argue from their standpoint, their emphasis, and they diminish all the other emphasis that might lead them off their trail, right? The other one is a man can lose his salvation. My Bible says, and they'll go on to explain those particular passages. So, again, we'll walk through these, but I want you to understand the approach as much as the truth because this is the approach that we've used for the last year and a half on all these issues. Um, now, we've talked, and I gave you this example uh, as probably the most argued about, uh, definitely the most hated doctrine in all of Scripture, the tension between sovereign election, eternity past, and the responsibility of man, right? I mean, you can lose friends and get uninvited to parties if you line up on the wrong side of this one. Uh, but in reality... They're both true. And where you find yourself studying these passages is where you need to settle down, understand the truth, and worship God for the truth. Okay? If you overemphasize one, you do damage to the other. If you overemphasize, like I've grown up my entire life, the responsibility of man, the responsibility of man, you do damage to the sovereignty of God. And then when you see people flip and they come over into the doctrines of grace, well, they go into what do we call that cage stage and they begin to do damage to the responsibility that we have upon our lives to turn from our sins and put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So wherever you're at, just hammer down. And hopefully we're faithful in teaching the Word. Where we find ourselves, we exhaust the text in preaching and teaching the text. But we don't do it to the damage of the other principles. Likewise, eternal security and the warnings that we find in the text falling astray. Tensions in the text. Now I'll tell you how you've been raised because it's probably exactly how I've been raised. The passages that challenge us, that cause us to examine our faith, were usually, I don't recall even, I'm almost willing to say ever taught. Because they strike at eternal security. This is the big Southern Baptist problem. They hammer down on eternal security, and I firmly believe in that. I've got all kinds of passages to back that up. But I also have passages that I've showed you time and time again in 1 John that you need to examine your life. You know, if you just go on living just like you always live in a pattern of sin and have no love for the things of the Lord, you need to examine your life. But those passages were avoided, not talked about, or dismissed because we can't violate eternal security, right? But you don't have to. You just walk through where you are and let those passages deal with you. So let's start with the idea of eternal security, not the idea of the eternal truth. This side of things is grounded in the person and the promise of God. It is fixed, it is unchanging, it is certain. These are the things that God has done, and they are set. They are not going anywhere. And for all those who are found in Christ, these are eternally true. Can't change them, right? We, in fact, we've been in Romans 8. I'll show you a passage in just a second. John, interestingly enough, John probably has more passages in the Gospel of John about eternal security than any other gospel. You can find something mentioned about it in almost every New Testament letter. But the Gospel of John really hammers out eternal security. But what happens in 1 John? If 1 John don't challenge your faith and cause you to examine yourself, you didn't read it close enough. So it's interesting that the same guy wrote both letters. Okay? Same guy wrote both things, and he's super comfortable in talking about both things. All right? Here's John 10. This is probably the one that most people like to hang their hat on when they talk about eternal security. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give eternal life to them. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Absolutely, unquestionably true. And I always used to do this when I teach that passage. So you're in Christ, and He's doing this. And then God the Father comes along and He does this, and it's like, yeah, you're not getting out of that. Your soul is eternally secure in the person and the promises of God. You're not going anywhere. If Satan himself rose up against you personally, he cannot change your eternal state if that's your eternal state, if you're resting in the person of Christ. Okay? Again, I'll give you several ones. Most of them are in the Gospel of John. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Can't question that. If you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have eternal life, period. Okay? John 6.37. It's probably about to change on me again. Yep, let me back up. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. I've heard this passage my whole life as far as eternal security goes, right? 
It's not happening, Jesus says. I will not push you aside. You are not going anywhere. You are secure in me. John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word, believes him who sent me, has eternal life. Negative does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. And when you read passages like this, you just need to stop and worship God. These passages are meant to encourage you, and they're meant to bring joy and worship in your heart. Can you imagine if you had to hang on to eternal life yourself? That'd be a terrifying thing. If God gave you something and it was your response, and there's a great number of people that believe that. God gives this to us, but we have to hold on to it, right? It becomes my work to maintain my connection with Christ. Nothing could be further from the truth. He does all the work. He secures you. He keeps you. He holds you. And when you come across that in your Bible study, stop and worship the Lord for what He's done, okay? John 3.16. This one's quoted often in regard to eternal security, and it should be. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's fixed, okay? Now, what makes all the difference in the world out of all those passages I just read? Most of the time, John uses the same word every time. Belief. Belief. Which is the word for faith, right? Makes all the difference. In all those passages, your eternal security didn't rest in anything else. It cannot rest in anything else. It's simply faith in the Lord Jesus Christ or belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. John's favorite word. 99 times in the Gospel of John. Faith. Okay? Makes all the difference. Here's the one that we're eventually going to get to in Romans 8. I think about two more weeks we'll be here. Uh, there's a couple in Romans 8 that are, you know, I get the impression, and I'll do more of this on Sunday morning, when Paul gets here, you know, he's gone. He is absolutely gone in worship to the Lord when he gets to the end of Romans 8. I don't know how he was able to write. His worship to the Lord is so high and so intimate and so personal and so filled with joy when he writes these words. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather he who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? Just as it stands written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in only Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, if you wonder what Paul's doing there, he's trying to create a list where you can't find a hole. He didn't leave a crack. He's literally saying everything that you can possibly imagine could never separate you from the love of God which is found in Christ Jesus. That's Paul's way of doing that. Okay? Covering all the bases. But I think this one is just as equally assuring 
We know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And then verse 30. These whom He predestined, He called. These He called, He justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. In other words, the verses are endless. Okay? If you have faith in Christ... You rest. Now, the reason that we're, I think, that we're not so filled with joy because we stand, we stand in a position that is absolutely unaware of persecution and suffering for our faith. Now, if you were in a circumstance where you could lose your job, lose your family, um, lose your life, lose one of your family members' lives, all of a sudden, these passages become overwhelmingly important to you because you need to know, right, that they are absolutely secure and nothing's going to change that. Or you are absolutely secure. You may have lost your family. You may have lost your job. You may have gotten kicked out of your culture. But that can never change who you are in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we don't face any of those things any of these things. So we walk through life and we read passages like this and we just kind of skip through them and go, oh, that's really nice. That is not really nice. Really nice. That is absolutely confirming to the soul when you're losing everything. These are truths that are true. They cannot be changed. And we have to learn to rest in them. Right? But at the same time, when you begin to look at passages about assurance, you'll read where Paul and Peter and other New Testament writers, even the Lord Jesus Himself, I'll show you a couple of passages, calls us to examine the sincerity or the genuineness of our faith. Right? 2 Corinthians 13 is one of these. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. He exhorts us to take a look at our own faith. In other words, there's no room for arrogance. There's no room for pride. That it could not be further from the person and the character of God. We don't walk around spouting passages of eternal security arrogantly or pridefully, bragging that I can't lose my salvation. That's not how it's demonstrated or communicated in the text. What's communicated in the text is you need to examine the genuineness of your faith. And I don't think anything could be said to you more lovingly than if somebody walked up to you and said, Brother, I'm, I'm concerned about your relationship with the Lord Jesus. I know you profess faith in Christ. But let me tell you something. The patterns that I see in your life are frightening. You need to hug him and kiss him because he loves you. The last thing you want to do is confirm somebody. It's not our job. All right? There are times, but... What I see in the church today is arrogance. What I grew up in, I consider to be arrogance because they use eternal security for an excuse and a scapegoat. Now, it is true. It is true. But again, the text challenges your heart. Number of places. Okay, so John, who wrote all those wonderful passages, here he goes in 1 John. 
Everyone who practices, there's your key word, sin, also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him sins. No one who sins has seen Him or knows Him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices, key word again, righteousness is righteous just as he is. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices, key word, pattern of life, sin, because his seed abides in him, he cannot sin, because he's born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. How in the world can the same guy write both, write both of those statements? I mean, is he talking at... You guys are fine, really. You're, he's, she's not bothering me. I mean, is he speaking out of both sides of his mouth? If you come one Sunday and he's hammering down on John 3.16 and you go home just praising the Lord that you're eternally secure and you come back next Sunday and the same guy walks to the pulpit and he says this kind of stuff. You see, you have to understand the difference between what he's doing. Eternal security is what God has done and what God has done is set and certain. But at the same time, unfortunately, our fallen nature sets us up for deceiving ourselves in so many ways. And we all want to rest, and this is why it always makes me so uncomfortable when you talk to somebody about their faith and they begin with the word I. Because I immediately, my heart sinks because you're about to tell me what you have done to make things right with God. And it makes me super nervous. Because Christ has done it all on our behalf and we simply have trusted in Him. Right? That's meant to challenge you. That's meant to cause you to look at your life and go, Man, I've got to turn from my sins and walk this thing out. What do you say? Our, our walk has to look like our talk, right? This is one of those passages. So what do you do with this? If you're a teacher or a preacher and you, you're adamant about eternal security. Well, I've got to figure out what I'm going to do with this passage because if I preach it like it stands, it's going to look like I'm contradicting myself. So I've got to fuzzy up the logic. Or I've got to say, well, he's talking to a particular group of people that doesn't pertain to us. Or I've got to say, well, and I actually heard a preacher say this, not on this passage, but on Ephesians 1 and 3. Now, it doesn't mean what you think it means because he's not saying what he, what he he's not meaning what he's saying. I thought, how bizarre. I've never heard a comment like that about the Bible. He doesn't mean what he said. It's a tension, and you've got to live in the tension. God presses us toward holiness, and it makes us uncomfortable, right? We just walked through Romans 8, 12, and 13, right? Putting to death the deeds of the body. If you're not doing that by the Spirit, you're not going to live. And you're like, what? You see? Tension. Hebrews is loaded with them. I asked a pastor friend of mine one time, what he thought about Hebrews. And he said, it's not for us. I said, what do you mean it's not for us? He said, Hebrews. Are you a Hebrew? <laughs> I laughed. I thought, that's pretty good, actually. So I said, I, 
shouldn't read it. He said, you shouldn't preach it. It's not to the Gentile church. I was like, okay. So there's no truce. No, okay. Bizarre. Bizarre. And the reason is passages like this. Hebrews 6, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift, have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, have tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucified themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. you got guys that walk up, See, I told you you can lose your salvation. Hebrews 6. And you're like, oh, what am I going to do? Start running around. That's what he does. It's to the Hebrews. It's not to you. It's meant to challenge you. I think, was this a passage in your class, John? Yeah, John's New Testament teacher brought this up and, and challenged the class with this thought. Difficult things. Difficult things to wrestle with. Hebrews 10. I think it's even more difficult. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who sets aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he deserves who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I never heard a sermon on that in my entire life until I preached it here. Not once. What's there to be terrified about if we're in the Gospel of John and we have eternal security, right? But you've got to wrestle with these passages. Now, I will tell you this. I will give you a little bit of relief here. Because in the context, the Hebrews, the Jews, were jumping ship. They come to faith in Christ, and then they figured out, you know what? Following Jesus is costing me everything. It is costing me my job. It is costing me my family. It's not worth all this. I'm going back. Okay? But at the same time, there's other passages in Scripture when we live a godless life, right? We begin to look like that in a very similar way. So, how are you going to take if we go on sinning willfully? That's the big question. Is he talking about particular sin, such as turning your back and denouncing faith in Jesus Christ? I actually had a Southern Baptist tell me one time, and I knew a man who had done that. Young man denounced faith in Christ, and he said, I remember when the kid got saved. That doesn't matter. Okay. Interesting. Interesting way of thinking about that. So what is he talking about sinning willfully? Is he talking about actual living a life of sin? Or is he just talking about that one where you turn your back on Jesus? I mean, Paul leaves you hanging in the text, I'll just tell you. You've got to wrestle with that. But it doesn't matter if that passage, if you can do enough aerobics to get yourself out of this passage, you still got to go deal with 1 John. Because he says something about practicing sin, right? Not such an easy out. Now this is the only passage that I know with that in one verse 
Paul does both. He talks about eternal security and he talks about the assurance of a believer. 2 Timothy 2.19 God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, period. And if he had stopped there, we'd have been fine. But then he goes on and says, Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Why would you have to do that? Right? Actually, I don't like the ESV there. It's the word confesses. Let everyone who confesses the Lord depart from iniquity. I mean, if you've jumped through the right hoops... Why would he put that with that passage? Why would he stand that side by side with a passage that deals with eternal security? All right, so this is a quote. I actually never heard this guy, but it's a really good quote. So let me read through this, and it, it's two slides long, so hang on with me and don't let me lose you. The writers of the New Testament wrote their books to people who had attached themselves to the church by profession of faith. They were not so naive as to presume that all who would come into contact with their letters were regenerate. However, they did not question, call into question or disparage the professed faith of their readers. The apostles addressed the church according to its profession and in this matter included tests, exhortation, admonition to depend solely upon God's grace and warnings against apostasy by which the readers could measure their own profession and understand or ascertain their status. Exhortations in scriptures, he says, have at least a threefold purpose to reveal the spurious or fake faith, to cause the believer to strive for holiness, and to drive the believer to his only source of enablement, the preserving grace of God. So he says, that's why you have the tension. I would add number four to remind us that it is only Christ and Christ alone who fulfills all commands and exhortations. And you've got to remember that when you find yourself in sin. Because you're not justifying yourself when you get it right. You're not preserving your salvation when you get it right. We fully depend upon Christ for justification and preservation. But at the same time, we're exhorted to do these things as a yardstick of our own faith. Okay? Again, to reveal the spurious professors of faith. Do you remember when I took you to the Gospel of John and it referred to them as believers and it never leaves the context and Jesus challenges them about who he is and they pick up rocks and want to stone him to death? And you figure out, oh wait, there's two kinds of faith in the Gospel of John. Both are professing faith, but only one is genuine and the other one is fake. And John's got enough backbone to snuff them out through his preaching, right? That's one of the purposes of the pulpit and that's the reason that you find these challenging passages in the text. They're trying to get you to snuff out the truth of your own heart and see what's in there. I've told you, this before I know, but you know, Steve left home as a teenager, didn't finish high school, went and lived on the streets, did all that stuff, right? And then finally his dad takes him to a men's conference 
God talks about the sincerity or the genuineness of faith. God interrupts his life, breaks his heart, and looks at his dad, and he's like, Dad, do you think I'm saved? And he was like, Son, the way you're living, you better work this one out. Okay? That's the purpose of these passages that challenge your heart. They're meant to catch you where you are and cause you to turn back and come to Him. Of course, you know how this works out theologically, right? If there is no catch, if there is no turning, if there is no returning to Him, right? It ought to strike fear, trembling fear in your heart. So the Lord has not left us alone in these things. And we just talked about this from Sunday. And I won't tell you this is an exhaustive list, but I will tell you this is enough. We talked about Romans 8, 16, Sunday, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. What a comfort. I mean, that, as I said Sunday, you can't put words on that one. You can't objectively put this one to a formula, but yet you know it when you experience it because it is the work of the Holy Spirit. And again, if you find yourself, and it, you may not find yourself worried about it and questioning your faith until you're on your deathbed, but when you find yourself really wrestling with sincerity and genuineness of your own faith, this is a ministry of the Holy Spirit to remind you who you belong to. But at the same time, everyone we talk to, and y'all know this is, is true as well, everyone you talk to rests with that and that alone. Because they'll say something like, I know that I know that I know. Well, then you won't have problems going on to 1 John and picking up the ruler and let's measure this thing a little bit. Because they're both there. So you've got yardstick or measuring tape passages to help you wrestle with who you are. And then you've got passages like Romans 8 to confirm it in your own spirit. This is who you are. God doesn't leave us alone in any of these things. All right, let's see if I can take this trip. That's pretty rough notes right there. I don't know why I did that to myself. Turn to Matthew chapter 10. Why do I do this? I'll tell you why I did it, because I thought, ah, you'll find it. Yeah, 16. Okay, so we're safe in this first note. Matthew 10, verse 16. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But be aware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in the synagogues, and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you're going to say, for it will be given to you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, 
But if he hadn't included this last phrase, we would be okay. But this last phrase runs us right off the rail tracks. But it is the one who has endured to the end who will be... Now, why did he say that? That is like totally not fair, right? And he's straight up talking about endurance. He's talking about perseverance. And it's not perseverance in the life that you and I have known. It's perseverance suffering and being persecuted for your faith in Christ. And Jesus flat out says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. The problem with that is, there's a very high chance that you and I will live and die and never be tested like he's talking about in Matthew chapter 10. Our parents did. We might make it through the entire life without being tested in that way. I don't know that our kids will. I don't know that they actually will make it through life without being tested like this, but there's a chance you and I might, and our parents did it. But Jesus says the one who endures the end will be saved. Go to Matthew chapter 24. All right, let's start with verse 4, 24, 4. Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not frightened, for those things must take place, but that's not yet the end. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famine and earthquakes. But in all these things are merely the beginnings of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you over to tribulation. They'll kill you. You'll be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. There it is again. That's a lot of stuff. I mean, he's, he's starting to rule out people as we get on further down the list. Verse 10, at that time, many will fall away. One will betray another. One will hate another. Lawlessness will be increased. Most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures, they're saved. So you get this understanding about the importance. So as we're measuring these things, I'm shifting gears a little bit, but I didn't think I was the more I thought about this. You see the eternal work of God that is unchanging, right? And you see these passages that challenge our faith, and then you begin to realize the key to all this is endurance or persevering in your faith. That's like the final measuring stick or final yardstick, if you will. This is the one, right, that we have to make certain of. Now, let me give you an example, though, of someone who appears to fall away. So go with me to Luke 22. I'll leave you with a little bit of comfort here. 
Luke 22, let's start in verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Verse 32. But I, Jesus says, have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Of course, Peter, verse 33, but he said to him, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. Verse 34, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied me three times. We see a lot in this passage of the things that we're talking about. But we see the grace of God working itself on the backside of what's going on in Peter's life. Because any of us in that situation sees a man deny the Lord three times just to save his own skin, we would immediately write him off. But you begin to see the grace of the Lord working on the backside. And he says, and when you've turned again, Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. Be sure and strengthen your brothers. So the guy who says, Lord, I'm, you know, I'm willing to go and die with you. When you go read First and Second Peter, you see a man that has been humbled by the grace of God, and he writes without half an ounce of pride. He writes from a heart of humility because of these experiences of what's taking place in his life here. Which makes you wonder if that was one of the purposes to begin with. One of them, not all of them. But the work of God causes endurance in Peter's life. Those two other passages, Hebrews 10, 36, if you want to take notes, Hebrews 10 calls for endurance. Guess what Romans 15, 5 says? God gives you endurance. There's your tension. Which, by the way, is, is the one word that sums up the entire book of Hebrews, perseverance. That's what the whole book's about. Persevere in your faith. Persevere in your faith. Get to Romans 15. Paul writes, it's God who causes perseverance. All right, questions? And with that, we're finished. Any questions?